You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Come Holy Spirit now and uh, turn my feeble words into your words that we might see the risen Christ and grab hold of his feet and worship him. Pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, welcome this evening to our service. Uh, Happy Easter. Um, I should say that to begin. I'm so delighted that uh, you're here with us, especially if you happen to be visiting uh, this evening. I am glad you're here for whatever reason brought you here, even if it was uh, reluctance. Um, You're exactly where you need to be. Uh, and I hope that you'll take care, to heart uh, what I have to say in my sermon this evening. And I, hope, I really hope that my sermon ends with a kind of a joyous tone. Um, someone once complained two or three years ago that my sermon on Easter sounded like a Good Friday sermon. And I said, well, I was just preaching the text. Um, and I am really happy and excited about Easter, uh, but this is all complicated by my generally pessimistic attitude, um, and so it's hard to, to come through, uh, but it's there. Um, I suffer from uh, this sort of hostile um, resting face, as it were. You might know it by something else. Um, and, and here's the thing. Tonight I'm going to preach the text again, and it's a story of distortion, bribes, cover-ups, blackmail, lies, and the work of Satan. So here we go. A few uh, weeks ago, several weeks ago, Mike uh, preached on the parable of the sower. We've been in Matthew for three months now. We'll end next week with the Great Commission. Um, if you don't remember, the parable of the, 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 the sower is a story about a man who sows seeds into three types of ground, and there are three different results based on the soil conditions that the seed fall in. And it's a parable that Jesus tells for demonstrating the way that the kingdom of heaven works. And I want to look closely at Jesus' explanation um, of the parable of the sower because it helps us to understand what's happening in the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, at least with the chief priests, the elders, and the, the soldiers who are guarding the tomb. So if you wouldn't mind, because we don't have it in the bulletin, if, if you would look together with me at this parable, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 818 in the dark red pew Bibles. Otherwise, you can find this in uh, Matthew chapter 13 if you have your own Bible. Um, and w- I'm not looking at the parable of the sower itself, but the explanation that Jesus provides where he's explaining why he's explaining to his disciples in private why he told this parable. So it might be under a heading in your Bible of something like the parable of the sower explained, starting at the 18th verse. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, 
But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So there are several things to note here. First of all, um, that Jesus says that when the word of God doesn't take root in an individual's life, it's because of the work of his own enemy, which is the devil or Satan, that takes that away and prevents the word from taking root. And it has a form of a couple different things. And one might be the tribulations or trials of just identifying as a Christian who's, who's outwardly so and, and, and sharing this message. And another might just be the general cares and anxieties of this world. And often that has to do with things like finances or riches, whatever our wealth is, the things that we uh, depend on. We were reading uh, the Bible with our children several mornings ago where, where it was very obvious what the idols of that world were, of Baal, you know, these obvious idols. And we told our children where the idols of Americans have to do with money, houses, cars, clothing, children. Those are the things that Americans worship. And our kids were like, really? That's crazy. You know, a five-year-old says that to you, and you see the craziness of it, but actually that's the thing. Those are the, the cares of the world that, that distract us and the, the devil uses to, to keep us from uh, understanding the word that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And so this is a sort of counter mission to the mission of God and his church. The counter mission is this deceitfulness that prevents us um, from hearing the word and, and holding fast to it and having it take root in our lives. And so we see this powerful countermission of deceitfulness in our passage today from Matthew, um, from the same gospel where the parable of the sower was told. Before I look at that, though, I want to tell you another story to sort of help see what I'm talking about. Um, do you remember uh, the silver chair from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Maybe you haven't read all of the Chronicles of Narnia. You know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, maybe the Don Treader, or some of the other stories. One of the final stories is called The Silver Chair. In the second half of the book, there are children. Children are often the protagonist. They're always the protagonists of the stories in the Chronicles of Narnia, which makes, them, makes it great. But there are children who are in this underground world who are uh, in this world is ruled by a green witch. You might remember the white witch from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is another one, a green witch, because she becomes a green serpent, ultimately. Hint, hint. I mean, the, it's not quite so veiled of, that she's a sort of demonic or devilish figure here. And when the children try to escape this underground world to go back above ground to, to Narnia, to the real world under the sun, she uses magic to deceive them, um, to, to make them think that there really is no above ground world, that it's all a delusion. She uses this green powder that she throws in a fire and it makes this aroma that intoxicates them. Then she starts playing a mandolin. Do we have a mandolin tonight? We don't. Um, she starts playing this mandolin and she has a soothing voice and this combination um, hypnotizes them so they start to believe the lie that she tells them that there is no Narnia, there is no above ground, there is no overland, there's only the underland, the, the realm that she rules. 
And one of the children, Jill, is actually from our world, and she's been transported into that world. And she starts to say, well, actually, I'm from a totally different world. And then here's where we pick up the witch says, why, this is a prettier game than the other, said the witch. Tell us, little maid, where is this other world? What ships and chariots go between it and ours? Of course, a lot of things darted into Jill's head at once, her own home, Radio sets, cinemas, cars, aeroplanes, ration books, cues, but they seem, seem dim and far away. Thrum, thrum, thrum went the strings of the witch's instrument. Jill couldn't remember the names of the things in our world, and this time it didn't come into her head that she was being enchanted. For now, the magic in its full strength, and of course, the more enchanted you get, the more certain you feel that you are not enchanted at all. She found herself saying, and, and at the moment, it was a relief to say, no, I suppose that other world must be all a dream. Yes, it is all a dream, said the witch, always thrumming. Yes, all a dream, said Jill. There never was such a world, said the witch. No, said Jill, never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but yours. As Jesus explains in the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And so now let's take a, a look at our own passage with that kind of deception in mind. And you can turn forward if you have your Bible out to page 835 or just look in the bulletin because we'll look, we're looking at that passage from Matthew. And I'd like to focus on the very end of the 27th chapter and then skip over the first 10 verses of the 28th chapter and look at verses 11 through 15 there because these are sort of parallel um, sets of verses that are telling the story of the chief priests, the elders, and the guards who are set to secure the tomb, and what, what they um, set out to do, and the deception that they create. Uh, and so this is the, the guards at the tomb. And I'll just point out the, the middle section, though, there is something to, to see there, is you'll see there's a, there's a repetition of seeing words, to see or behold. And this is evidence on this is an emphasis on a empirical evidence that, Mas that Matthew's being very deliberate that there is empirical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, that this isn't just some airy fairy spiritual thing, that this is an empirical reality. And notice that the angel doesn't roll away the stone to let Jesus out. He's already left. Why does the angel roll away the stone? But so that the women might see that Jesus has left. Again, emphasizing the, the evidence that he is risen. And this uh, claim of empirical evidence is important for the resurrection story. But with that in mind, look, at, look with me at the bits about the guards at the tomb and the reports of the guard. Uh, starting at, at the 27th chapter at the 62nd verse, the next day, which is the Sabbath. So the first thing that we're told right there is that they're, they're so bent on doing this that they break the Sabbath. 
The next day, that is, the, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. They are seeing the importance of if, if, there, if there's any idea that, um, that if people might get some idea that he actually is risen, that we'll have a problem on our hands. Therefore, order the tomb, they say to Pilate, to be made secure until that third day. And notice here the repetition of the word secure. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. This is a sort of false security. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And by the way, when they say the last fraud will be worse than the first, what they're saying is the first, the, the, the first fraud would have been him claiming his identity of being the king of the universe, the messianic king. And the next fraud that's to come, the one that will, that will, um, the one that will prove this identity is if, they, if anyone believes that he, he's risen from the dead. Even if they believe this, we're going to have a real problem on our hands because this will be the thing that they'll point to to say, see, he was exactly who he said he was. And see, he did exactly what he said he would do on the cross. And then skipping ahead to verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were, were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And so you see here what's happening is the, uh, the religious leaders are using money to bribe the soldiers to cover up even just the, this, the idea even if they don't believe in it per se, they see the power of the idea alone enough to cover it up, to pay some people, and even go out of their way to convince Pilate not to punish the soldiers for falling asleep um, so that they could cover up this idea that Jesus is risen from the dead. And this story has been spreading ever since that day. And it's sort of prescient because this is only a couple uh, decades after the fact, but it's still being spread to our day. And so we see here at the end of Matthew's gospel two missions at hand. First, there's the mission of God and Jesus Christ and his church. Now that the resurrection has occurred, and on the basis of that resurrection, it's the mission of the church. On the basis of the resurrection, the good news finds its sort of linchpin in the resurrection. So if that's the first mission, the second mission is this counter mission of deception which is led by the authority figures and is backed both by finances and the work of God's enemies, or you could say his ultimate enemy, set out to deceive people. Well, who are the guards at the tomb in our day? And who are they colluding with? As Matthew says, as I pointed out at the end of this passage, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, and I'm afraid that it's spread much further since the time of Matthew. 
This is a message that has had a, a counter mission for 2,000 years. We see it here in Matthew. We see hints of it in the passage that from Paul in the first uh, letter of his to the Corinthians in chapter 15 that we also read. And we know there was opposition to the message of the resurrection and the, the writings of the early church. And it reared its nasty head again with full vengeance in the 1800s in the wake of Western Enlightenment, naturalism, materialism, and so-called intellectual movements. And that movement has stuck around and grown and moved to other territory far beyond the resurrection. That's no longer really, it's sort of, the resurrection is sort of a footnote. Now it's just skepticism about anything religious, anything to do with Christianity, or even truth itself. And worst of all, though, this distorted uh, message has made its way into the church. Today, if you go to uh, hear Easter sermons, you might hear uh, this message being hyper-spiritualized and not taken as a historical reality that Jesus actually one day rose from the dead. Or you might hear people say things like, let Jesus be raised in your heart, you know, or something like that. Um, or sentimentalized, usually reduced to amount to some sort of hallmarky message about love or new life or beginnings that are related to spring or something like that, which is fine as far as those things go, but that's not the point of the resurrection story, which, as I said, is a, a claim about something that happened in history. And so given our historical situation, what do we make of the resurrection? What can we say of it in good conscience? The former uh, dean of this church, uh, Frank Limehouse, that's just a fancy pants word for saying the senior pastor, the former senior pastor of uh, the Advent here is named Frank Limehouse, um, retired a few years ago. He came here in 2005, and I've known this story for a while, so I looked it up online, and actually I was able to find a news article from 2005 when he was leaving his church in Beaufort, South Carolina to come here to the Advent. His conversion to Christianity hinged on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On that point, that it all hinged on that. And here's the story from the news article. An avid golfer, Limehouse, heard the question that would lead him toward Christianity and ultimately to seminary on the ninth hole at a golf course in Spartanburg. Limehouse spent years of his adulthood somewhere between uh, Unitarian Universalism and agnosticism, he said. His wife, Jane, was determined to keep her Christian roots and raise their son, Frank, in the church. She chose a local Episcopal church where the rector asked Jane if her husband would join him for a round of golf. A reluctant Limehouse agreed. At the ninth hole, the rector asked Limehouse about Easter. What is your problem? Is it with Jesus' resurrection? The question stuck with Limehouse, who realized that was the crux of many unbelievers' doubt. Intrigued, he studied first century history and was moved by the conviction of the early Christians. And here's a quote from him. It was not a rumor that electrified these people, Limehouse said. Later, during a visit to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, a Catholic church, he was moved to pray a rite he had not performed since his boyhood. He asked God, was he raised or not raised? When he left the church, Limehouse had a warm feeling in his heart, which he likened to falling in love 
on the plane home, he knew that he was a Christian. I resonate with so much of Frank's story of coming to faith. Uh, for me, I had fewer hang-ups about the resurrection itself. As I said, I was a product of our own culture. Uh, for me, the skepticism was more widespread. It was more about the truth of Christianity in general and the meaning of the cross in particular. But the answer to both concerns about the truth of Christianity and the meaning of the cross lie in the resurrection. Christ rising, as I said, is the linchpin of Christian faith and history. If this didn't happen in history, there is no point. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, all of this would be in vain. You might as well just go home and eat your roasted lamb without Jesus you know, for dinner tonight. Uh, who cares, you know? If, if he wasn't risen from, from the dead, we're all just wasting our time. But if it, if it did happen, it alters everything. This is a, a truth that the counter-mission, as we see in Matthew's Gospel, understood all true well. Friends, uh, it was not a mere rumor that electrified these people, as Frank said. No one willingly dies for what they know to be a rumor. Most of Christ's original disciples were martyred for this message, something that they witnessed with their own eyes. And if you haven't dealt with the resurrection before, I say uh, to you to now do so. And go ahead and ask God in this cathedral, was he raised or not raised? If he wasn't, then St. Paul's right. We shouldn't be Christians. We shouldn't even be here. If he was, this is the most important thing that has happened in history. And if uh, you'll, you'll find yourself to be on, on one side of the equation or the other. If you find yourself either to be an active or more likely a sort of silent uh, partner in the counter mission against God and our risen Savior, um, you might find that life is actually easier. If you're in the counter mission of opposition against this message, life in this world is actually going to be easier. You'll be in the majority, and you'll be able to live in a sort of ignorance is bliss state. But if you join the mission of the risen Christ and his church, truth lies here. And the historical evidence is actually much better on this side. Anyone who's told you otherwise has deceived you or, or they've been lied to themselves and are spreading that deception. But believe the resurrection and you will be in the minority and you will be met with resistance from the counter mission. And yet you'll know what you know to be true and therefore have integrity. And being here means sharing this story also with others because those of us who are struck by it can't help but to share this message. And here's a, my final word of hope to bring the joyous tone in finally. If it's been so much like Good Friday so far, here's the, here's the Easter message of joyous tone that I find the tone at the end of Matthew's Gospel to be very reassuring. Um, he's talking about all this deception and lies and bribery of what I've been calling this sort of counter mission against God in an unalarmed way. There's no hint of fear. 
There's no tone of, and we ought to go out there and fight it, darn it. It's just a sort of shoulder shrug. It is what it is. That this is the reality of the Christian life. That people are going to resist this message. And so get used to it. But here's where the truth is. And we should expect uh, this resistance for what it is and not fear it. And not feel that we need to necessarily have a frontal attack on it, but to instead just continue to let the message of Jesus Christ overflow from us and to share it. And that alone will do its work. As Christ said, not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. And so I'll say to you that I personally stake my own life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It confirms his identity as the messianic king of the universe, and it confirms his work on the cross for saving us from sin. And so join me in not just hearing this message, but being so struck by it that it alters the course of your own life, and you can't help but to share it. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.